First Peter chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15 today, which will serve as the text for the message. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to join me in reading silently in whichever version of the Bible you have available. First Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Before we know it, we'll be going to the mall and other places like that, and we will encounter people ringing a bell. And we know they represent, as volunteers in most cases, the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army is the largest Protestant Christian charity in the entire world. We may not know a whole lot more beyond that. Maybe you know that people who are in the Salvation Army have ranks and they wear uniforms. That may be the extent of your knowledge. Some of you are more aware of the history of the formation of the Salvation Army. A couple named William and Catherine Booth in the 19th century formed what we now know as the Salvation Army. These two people were fully devoted to Jesus Christ, a great force in the kingdom of God as a married couple. William Booth was asked one time, he was known as the general, in the army, and he was asked by someone who was on the outside looking in, Mr. Booth, what is the secret of your success? And without hesitation, he responded by saying, Jesus Christ has all of me. In order for us to have Christ where He belongs in our lives, we must ask and answer the question, does Christ have all of me? And the way in which He has all of us is found in this passage. In the first part of verse 15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. If you have the NIV translation, it says, and it's more easily understood, Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. There's a deliberate act that I must engage in if Christ is going to be Lord of my heart. I have to willingly and consistently set apart Christ or sanctify Him in my heart. Now, let's take a closer look at these three verses about this whole matter of setting Christ apart as Lord. There are three major ideas which I have seen in the passage and associated passages regarding the Lordship of Christ in my life and in any follower of Christ's life. The first of which is that there are certain reasons for us to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. And the first reason is indicated by the name Lord itself. When you look at the history of the development of the name Lord, what you discover is initially, before Christ was ever in the picture, this word was used simply to describe someone who was a master or owner of others. A master or owner of others. Secondly, it was used, and later it was used, to describe all the Caesars of the Roman Empire. Lord Caesar, Lord Caesar, and then the name would be filled in. And you probably know that the Caesars themselves were 
perceived as deities. The name Lord was also inserted in front of the names of all the Greco-Roman gods. Lord Zeus, Lord Jupiter, Lord Minerva, Lord etc., etc., etc. And then when it came time, as I believe God led the leaders of Israel to translate what we now know as the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek so that the many Greek-speaking Jews who had lost touch with their native tongue because of generations of separation from what we know as Palestine or Israel, when it was translated into Greek from Hebrew, the name Lord, which we know as Jehovah, Yahweh, is the Hebrew name that God gave Himself when He introduced Himself to Moses in the burning bush experience. That name Yahweh or Jehovah whenever it's translated into Greek from Hebrew in what is called the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's always translated by this word, kurios, the word which is used to describe Jesus in the New Testament, Lord. So what does this tell us about Jesus? Well, we already know some things about Jesus, one of which is that He is our owner. He is our Master. Why do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. It was bought with the precious blood of Jesus. He is our Master, isn't He? He is our Lord. He owns us. And what a benevolent owner He is. There are two words which are used in the New Testament for Lord. Despotes, and you can hear an English word from that word. What is it? despot, and then the word kurios, which is the word that's most often used. Scholars seem to agree that the word despotes is used of a tyrannical kind of lord, master, whereas in reference to Jesus, he is the benevolent master or lord of us. Christ does own us, and Christ is God. This is a reason to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, right? If He is indeed God, and the uniform testimony of both testaments would indicate that truth. The Bible says, for instance, in Isaiah 7:14, speaking of the coming Messiah, a young virgin will be with child, and she shall bear a son, not just any child, but a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. When the angel of the Lord spoke to the foster father of Jesus, Joseph, what did he say the child's name would be? Emmanuel, which means God with us. The very name that was given hundreds of years before the Messiah came to him and then was reiterated by the angel of the Lord speaking to Joshua that Jesus was given. God is with us. He is God. If we go another couple of chapters forward in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the Bible says, A child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. Speaking of the humanity and the divinity of the Messiah, His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So, the names which are given in advance, hundreds of years in advance of the Messiah, 
Jesus being that person were names which are indicative of deity. Jesus is God. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, a great prophecy given through the prophet Jeremiah. This is what that text says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Take note of that. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and do wisely and do justice and bring righteousness into the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name that will be given to him, the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord makes this declaration and then he makes mention of this coming one and his name will also be Lord. Interesting, isn't it? God the Father makes the declaration through the prophet Jeremiah about the coming one, the Messiah, and we know He is Jesus, God the Son, the Lord our righteousness. The Bible says this about Jesus. God made Him, God the Father made Jesus to be sin on our behalf in order that we might become, what? The righteousness of God in Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about how Jesus Christ is, among other things, our righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. He is God, and He is our righteousness. In Psalm 115, verse 3, the Bible says that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Remember, the Spirit of God inspired the writing of Scripture. And whenever there's a reference to God... There is a correlation to God the Son. It's not just about God the Father. It's the Godhead active. Our God does whatever He pleases. God the Father does what He pleases. The Holy Spirit is actually described as the Lord by Paul in 2 Corinthians. If you're familiar with it, you know that. But Jesus is God. He is the Lord. I love the passage which... We read together a bit earlier from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. And I hope you sense the magnification of Jesus in that passage. The Scripture says that through Him, all things were created. By Him, all things were created. And for Him, all things have been created. All things visible, invisible, physical, spiritual, Everything has been created by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. We would not need to know anything else but that. And that would be enough reason for us to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. This becomes difficult for many people. Mahatma Gandhi, the great revolutionary, he had a different approach to revolution, a nonviolent approach. He was a man who is to be respected for who he was and what he did. He held in his own thinking a very high place for Jesus. But this is what he said when he was pinned down about what he believed regarding Christ. This is what he said. I cannot accord to Christ a solitary throne because I believe God has incarnated himself time and time again. Well, the testimony of Scripture and probably your own testimony, is that God has become man 
in the person of Jesus Christ. There's only been one incarnation. There will never be another. Through this one whom we know as Jesus Christ, He is Lord. He is the one through whom all things came into being. Nothing has come into being that has come into being except through the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it be material or spiritual. So here's the first reason for setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. He's the Lord. He is God. And we are to respond to Him in His deity, His entitlement, by being our Creator. But God the Father certified the Lordship of Jesus Christ in Jesus' humanity. Now, you know that Jesus was God all the time. I hope you do. He didn't, for that period of 33 years when He inhabited a human body, become only human. He retained His divinity. However, He did not consider equality was something to be grasped. But He humbled Himself, the Scripture says. He humbled Himself. And He took on the very nature of a servant. He took on human flesh. He became a human being without divesting Himself of His divinity. But this is what did happen. There was, I'm sure, long consultation between Jesus, the God, pre-incarnate God with the Father, about what His role would be when He came to earth to identify with us in our humanity and then to die for us as one of us in order that He could save us from our sin as to what that role would be. And it was obviously decided that Jesus, when He says, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, He says, I've come to do the will of God. He came and without divesting Himself, ditching His divinity in His humanity in order to fully identify with you and me, He became one of us in the area of submission to the Father. That was part of Jesus' dealings. And then He humbled Himself, the Scripture says, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that, therefore, God gave Him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What name did He give us? Did God give Him, I should say? It was the name Lord. That was the certification by the Father of Jesus as to His divinity and in His humanity, and the way He lived His life out and how His life concluded upon His death. The Bible says in Romans 14, 9, For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the only creed that the New Testament believers had. Simple. Jesus is Lord. In the original language, only two words were needed. Jesus is Lord. And by virtue of His being Lord, He is certainly entitled to the rulership of my life and all humans' lives, especially those of us who know Jesus. We have received Him as our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look now at the results 
of setting Christ apart as Lord. One of the results is possible suffering for identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 13. Who is there to harm you? If you prove zealous for what is good. Allow me a moment of interpretation. The two words, prove zealous, we don't use that terminology that often. Here's a possible and I think a better interpretation of the original word. Who is there to harm you if you are enthusiasts for what is good? If you are a person who is sold on the out, whole outpouring of goodness, through your life toward other people. And that is a driving force in your life. The Scripture says, who is there to harm you if you have such an outlook? Now, we know that there are people who just don't like do-gooders. And they make fun of do-gooders. They may even ridicule them with words of derision. But the word translated harm does not include the idea of just being spoken poorly about or two. This word harm is a word which often, if not most often, is used to describe physical abuse leveled at people who are identified with Jesus as their Lord. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Remember what we saw two weeks ago in verse 12. Look above and remember every text has a context and it's unfortunate that we don't have seven or eight days just to spend together and go over the whole book of First Peter. But we don't. We have 40 minutes once a week to do it. Look at verse 12. Remember what we saw two weeks ago. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Those are people who do good. And His ears attend to their prayer. The Lord listens to and observes, and not without interest, I might add. He listens to and observes with great interest what's going on in the lives of His children, people who are zealous or enthusiastic for what is good. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The Bible is very clear that God is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our rock. He is our shield. And sometimes we don't sense that. But what we understand is that the things that really matter about us Ultimately, our character, for instance, or our salvation, our bodies are important to the Lord too. We belong to Him. He loves us. But what we must bear in mind is that nothing anyone can do to you and me as followers of Jesus Christ can impact our character or our standing before God, our salvation. In fact, the Bible would indicate to you and me that when we have trouble, those troubles, those tribulations can be a springboard to further spiritual growth. In Romans 5, verse 3, the Bible says, We exult in our tribulations. That would be persecution, suffering. We exult. That means we rejoice in them. Can you imagine? We rejoice or exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance. And perseverance produces what? Proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint. So we understand that there may be some sufferings associated 
with our setting apart Christ as Lord. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, what's that all about? Remember, Peter was one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. It was to him and other disciples that the Sermon on the Mount, we call it, was delivered. It was not delivered for an unbelieving group. It was delivered for people or disciples. And the last of the eight Beatitudes says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people persecute you and insult you and say all manner of evil against you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. So, so they treated the prophets who were before you. So there is a blessing, and, and we're not into sadomasochism here, okay? We don't have to go out and put ourselves in harm's way. We just follow Jesus, and He will at times lead us into places that are very dangerous. And we know that church history is replete with examples of hundreds of thousands of people who've been martyred for their faith. It's going on right now. Sam prayed for the persecuted church. Around the world, people are being martyred today because they've set apart Christ as Lord in their hearts. So, we need to understand that there are cases where it seems like God has turned His back in indifference toward people who are suffering because of their identification with Him. But it's not true. The Lord will, in fact give those people a greater reward as a result of their willingness to be identified with Jesus in this way. So one of the results of setting apart Christ as Lord, we have to be completely true to the text of Scripture, not just this passage, but others is. We might have some suffering in our lives, but God will give us the grace to deal with that suffering. Here's a second result. Opportunity for effective witness to Christ. Look at verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. May I stop here just a moment? The word defense. This word defense is the word apologia in the original language of the New Testament. It's a word, obviously, from which our word apology comes. It's not about apologizing for the gospel of Jesus. It's not about that at all. But it's really not so much an excuse for arguing with people. This is not about arguing with people. The idea is the idea of giving an explanation to people. And it's a word that's not so much a formal defense of the gospel as a spontaneous, informal response that comes out of everyday living. And the background probably in the mind of Peter and the Spirit of God here is this. If you happen to be persecuted, if it should be that because of your identification with Jesus Christ, it's not just ugly words which are said to you. It's not just ugly looks that are made toward you. It's not just people walking away from you when you are telling the good news of Jesus Christ. When you are harmed physically and people observe this, it will make an indelible impression upon many of them. And God has used over and over through history the martyrdom of people, the hurt that people, the harm that has come to people who have set apart Christ as Lord in their hearts to draw those people to Christ. I'm thinking of a man 
who lives here in El Paso. He's actually a member of our church. And I sat as I listened to his testimony in my office probably five years ago now. And he told me about before he knew Jesus, he had a friend who was a classmate in high school. And that friend would come to him and other classmates of his from time to time and witness about Christ. He had not been a believer when they were in high school. He came to know Jesus. And he came and he witnessed to this man and several of his friends on more than one occasion. And this brother in Christ, through regretful tones in his voice, told me how he said, I wish I knew where I could contact this man to say, I'm sorry for being so rude to you for sharing such ugly feelings towards you for telling me about Christ. He says, I don't know where he is. I don't know how to contact him. But if I see him again, I'm going to apologize and I'm going to give gratitude to him for that. But I've given gratitude over and over again to Jesus for that man's willingness to take ridicule from me and others. So you see, many people come to Christ. He said that man's testimony was critical at a later point. Years after that, he thought back on that as he was debating whether to set apart Christ as Lord in his heart. Look back at verse 15. Always being ready. Are you ready? Could you give an explanation to someone who asks you about the hope that is in you when you are suffering, maybe at their hands? Are you ready to give such an answer? That's what the Scripture says will happen if we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. What better outcome could there be than being a tool in the hands of Jesus Christ to introduce people to Him and through Him to the Father into the kingdom of God. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. The word translated account. Some of the translations translate that word reason. It's the word logos. Can you hear a family of English words coming from logos? Logic. Logical. Those are words which come from Lagos. And so this explanation that we're to always be ready to make when asked, it's not like something you have to go to seminary to get. You do not have to be an apologetic in the sense of being able to answer all the philosophical questions people have. You just have to share the gospel of Jesus, which is very simple. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and He's been raised again according to the Scripture. That's it. You can give some elaboration on that, but that's the Gospel. And we know the Bible says that the Kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. And you know what that power is? The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. Are you able to share the simple gospel of Jesus with someone else? You don't have to go through a course to learn how to do that. You just have to set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. And you have to know the simple message of the gospel. 
that God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that God has raised Christ from the dead, what does the Scripture promise? We shall be saved. It's not hard. It's what the outcome of setting apart Christ in our hearts is. Well, let's now look at the third and final emphasis, the requirements for setting apart Christ. Here's the first one. Fear Christ. Fear Christ. You say, well, the Bible says fear God, but it doesn't say fear Christ. Well, remember, who is Christ? He's God. But do you know in the New Testament, the Bible speaks about our fearing Christ? In Ephesians 5.21, it speaks of the fear of Christ. And actually, here in this passage of Scripture, look again at your text in verse 14. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. This is taken from Isaiah, the 8th chapter, and beginning with verse 12. If you have quick access to that, look it up. If not, listen carefully. You're not to say it is a conspiracy. The southern kingdom of what once was part of the undivided nation of Israel, the southern kingdom was under siege, under great threat. The countries of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the country of Syria were coming against Ahaz and the kingdom of Judah. Ahaz was the king. And it's a conspiracy against you. Look at what he goes on to say in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. What I did not mention is they feared the king of Assyria, who was the biggest dog in Middle East at this time, coming against them. I'm talking about against Israel and Syria. And eventually, they said, would come against Judah too. You are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. One of the names that's, I don't hear it invoked much. In fact, I'm not sure I ever have. When we love the names of the Lord, and we should, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. What are some of the names of the Lord? The Jehovah hyphenated names. Jehovah-Rohi, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah-Jireh, I shall not want. Jehovah-Rapha, the Lord who restores my soul. He is Jehovah-Shema, the Lord who is there. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And all those wonderful names, they're so encouraging. Sometimes when I'm a little bit down, if I go and begin to look at all those names and begin to praise the Lord for all those aspects of who He is, it has a way of lifting me up and encouraging me. I fear the Lord. But here's the name that I'm getting to. I can't even tell you where it's found, except I know it's in the book of Genesis that just came to my mind. It's the fear of Isaac. Isaac feared the Lord. And we, if we know what's right, we too will fear the Lord. And this is the beginning point, quite frankly, of setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. We know He is God, and we want to relate to Him in a healthy way kind of fear. You know, there's only one person in the universe that you and I should fear, and that is God. And if we fear God, 
we will have the capacity to face any other human being who opposes us, not in arrogance, but if we go back now to the book of 1 Peter, how are we to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give a reason, a logical expression, explanation of the hope that is in us? How is it? With gentleness and reverence. You know, there's no command for us to preach to people, as we would think might be. It's to be, first of all, people in whom Christ has been set apart as Lord. And then we will be able to approach people with gentleness for them and reverence for the Lord. That's what God's called us to, to fear Christ. And the result will be we will be effective in this life we call the Christian life. Here's the second thing. It's like the flip side of the first because in the book of Psalm 112, the Bible says, Greatly blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And then an explanation is given that by the psalmist who greatly delights in the commands of the Lord. Loves to obey the Lord. So here's the second thing. Fear Christ, follow Christ. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Have you noticed how frequently in the New Testament Jesus simply says to people, Follow me. Follow me. Have you noticed that? Follow me. Follow me. It's not rocket science, is it? Follow me. And by implication, what that means is imitate me. And that would include obeying me. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's a daunting question, perhaps for you as it is for me. I think of one of the kings of Judah. His name is Amaziah, and the Scripture says about him in the book of 2 Chronicles 26, verse 2, it says, Amaziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did everything right, evidently, but not with a whole heart. Let me ask you this question. Are you that way? You may do everything right, but underneath, it's with a divided heart. Which leads to the third aspect of setting apart Christ as Lord. What's the first one? Fear Christ. Second one? Follow Christ. Here's the third one. Surrender to Christ. Surrender your name to Christ. Isaiah 42.8 God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Has it been your way in life like it has been mine way too often? to be interested in making a name for yourself. I've tried it. I've tried to make a name for the Lord and I've tried to make a name for myself at the same time. And it's flopped miserably every time I've tried that. Because I have to be undivided in my allegiance, not to Mike Woods, not even to Coronado Baptist Church, but to Jesus. That's what it means to set apart Christ and not be about making a name for ourselves. I was talking to one of our teachers in the church this morning, and he made reference to the Tower of Babel and how the people built that tower. Do you remember what their motive was, among others, probably the primary motive, so they could make a name for themselves? 
You know, a lot of churches build big edifices to make names for themselves. Or preachers do things to make names for themselves. We do that. It's out of bounds if Jesus is Lord. And He is Lord. He's not Lord simply of the universe. He's the head of the church, which is His body. He is to be preeminent. Did you notice that? That's the ESV translation of that last part of verse 18, that He might be preeminent in the church. We are to surrender our all to Him. In Acts 10.36, it says that Jesus is the Lord of all. And if Jesus is not Lord of all of my life, He won't be Lord at all. It's on His terms only that He is my Lord, and that extends to every area of my life. Many claim to have welcomed Christ as King, but reserve an area for themselves. A truly kingly rule is without limit. Jesus intends to rule over every area of your life. He's entitled to it. He's paid the price for that in saving you from your sins. Is Christ over all areas of your life? Now, this does not mean that you won't ever falter. I hesitate to even say this because someone might hear it and say, Oh, I have an excuse. There's no excuse, really. When I sin, it's mine. I'm responsible for that totally. Nobody else is responsible for my sin. I'm responsible for it when I sin. But what I've noticed since I made Christ Lord, it's been over 40 years ago now. I was a Christian. I believe I was saved. But I didn't understand this whole matter of lordship. I was in my early 20s. And when it dawned on me that I needed to make Christ not just Savior, but Lord, then there was a big change. I had a new awareness of sin when I committed sin. And what I wanted to do immediately when I became convicted of sin that I had committed, what I wanted to do right then and there, I didn't wait for Sunday or being alone, I confessed my sin to the Lord right then. That's what is characteristic of a person who has set apart Christ as Lord in his or her heart. It's not that you don't ever sin, but when you do sin, because you've oriented yourself toward Jesus, He's the North Star. He's the point of reference in your life. This is what happens. When we do sin, we are quick to humbly ask Him for forgiveness and ask Him to help us not to return to that kind of thinking, speaking, or doing. So here's the question. Is He Lord of all areas of your life? During the Napoleonic Wars, Lord Nelson, who was the Admiral of the British Navy, had won a victory over the French Navy. And one of the ships pulled out beside him, the French, after they had run up the white flag in surrender. And the captain of the French sailing vessel crossed over into the boat of Lord Nelson. He still had his sword attached to his belt, and it was around his waist. He came with a smile on his face, extending a hand to Lord Nelson. Lord Nelson neither smiled nor gestured his hand in his direction. He simply said, Sir, your sword. You had to surrender all in order to have peace. On the human level, it's true for us. Are you lacking peace in your life? Well, it's likely if you are, you need 
to set apart Christ as Lord in your heart? Why don't we offer our all to Christ? Well, let me give you some quick things that have come to my mind about why I haven't in the past. I think God might not know what's best for me. That's absurd, isn't it? It really is. God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for shalom and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Here's the second thing that might cause us not to offer our all to Christ. Jesus might ask me to do something I don't want to do. I wrestled with this for years. And finally, when I realized there was no alternative for me, I did surrender my life to the Lord. And I thought, why in the world did I wait these many years to make this commitment of full surrender to the Lord? Why did I put it off? It was foolish. And I realized it at that point. And here's a last possibility. Christ might ask me to do something I can't do. Well, He'll ask you lots of things you can't do. That's the whole point. The Christian life is not about you trying to do good things for the Lord. It's about your surrendering to the Lordship of Christ and setting apart Christ as Lord in your heart, committed to fear Him and follow Him, obey Him, and He will give you the power. It's His life in us that makes it possible to live the Christian life. So many people in this room are frustrated today. They've tried and they've tried. You're on the verge of giving up, perhaps. Well, go ahead and give up because that's what the Lord wants to bring you to. It's what He has to bring all of us to, to an end of ourselves, to where we think there's no hope for us. And He says, I'm glad you finally got it. Set me apart as Lord in your heart. Did Paul, the great Christian, wrestle with that? With that, he said, no good thing dwells in me. That's what he said. But in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, he makes this statement. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are many applications of that, but I'm going to make one. And that is this. The Holy Spirit has been given to us if we know Jesus. And it's His power that is necessary and capable of helping us to do whatever the Lord has for us to do. And to be God-honoring in our relationships to it. Well, I had lots more to say, but I want to finish with this illustration from the Bible. In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18, the great prophet Elijah is on a mountain, Mount Carmel or Carmel, depending on your choice of pronunciations. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. He's facing off against 850 prophets. And 850 to 1, pretty bad odds. But with God, it worked out pretty well for Elijah. He defeated them all. But before he entered into the battle, there was a large group of spectators. We don't know how many, but a lot were there watching this. People of Israel... And they were standing there watching. And this is what he said to him. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. 
He could be saying that. God could be to you today through the prophet Elijah. How long will you continue to hesitate between straddling the fence, wanting a little bit of God when it's convenient, and then wanting a lot of the world the rest of the time? How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If the world is your God, follow the world. Let's pray. In your own heart, you know what God's been saying to you. It's been uncomfortable for you, perhaps, a little bit. It's not a comfortable message to prepare or to share sometimes, but it is good news because the truth of God's Word sets you free. Are you tired of being bound up in whatever binds you up? Well, then it's one simple step of commitment in your heart to say, Jesus, I surrender not just part of me, but all of me to your Lordship. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that you'll give me the power to follow you and to fear you and to represent you. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for this in Jesus' name.